Howdy. I'm back. Howdy. There you go. All right. So last week I was not supposed to be up here. Today I am. This was actually scheduled. Um, Wayne is feeling better, just so you know. Uh, he was scheduled to be off this week to uh, study and prepare for a Christmas series as well as continue work in First Peter. So um, thank you for praying for him. He is doing better in uh, Lord willing, we'll be back. Uh, he'll be back next week to continue on in our series. Um, but today, I get to share with you again. A few weeks ago, um, I was helping out in our WANA program, uh, and I was called to help one of our commanders, Charlie, in, with our littlest clubbers. And I had a great time. Um, uh, most of the time, I spent trying to comfort one young lady who was not having the best time. Um, we got to play Legos, and we got to play with baby dolls, and we got to uh, sing songs, and it was just a wonderful time just watching and just being delighted in the wonder of these little ones, watching them just develop right in front of us and play and have fun. It was awesome. There were a few moments when one of the little boys, though, attempted to do something um, a number of times that was not in the best interest of him nor the rest of the students in the classroom. And so I would give a command, no, little man, that is not what we're doing right now. No. And with his sweet face and droopy eyes and soft voice, he would reply, why? Why? I don't know how many times I heard that, but um, just as a little aside, little parenting advice, teaching advice, you do not negotiate with terrorists, <laughs> nor two-year-olds, okay? You don't, you don't negotiate with them. It's not a negotiation factor going on. So I redirected him. Um, a number of times, and we continued our evening playing and taking care of each other and having fun. But in the moment, I actually was struck by the fact that he just kept saying why, and I was like, wow, this kind of speaks to a lot of us, doesn't it? Like, from an early age, we want to know why. Why is this so? Now, I believe that much of that actually is just curiosity. We want to understand. We want to know more and, and, and get to the, to the root of things. And so it's, it's a curiosity, and we ask, hey, why is this happening? And yet, in that delighted wonder of asking that question, it is tainted by sin. We know that, correct? It can be tainted, and it, and it can come across and, and actually be, in fact, an act of us trying to control the situation and get our own way. What are the questions, what are the why questions in your life? What are those things that happen? Why does this keep happening to me? Why, does, why is it that I can't just be healthy? Why is it that we can't for once pay the bills? Why can't my boss understand? Why doesn't my spouse listen? Why don't my kids listen? Why, why, why? Last week I shared with you the, a, a note from my, from my journal as I was reading through First uh, Peter. And I asked this question, how often do we run from the trial or at least attempt to? Following that question, here's the prayer that I wrote um, just in the journal. It says, Lord, help me appreciate the trials and tests. Help me rest in the living hope. Help me wait for the revelation of Jesus, even if you choose not to tell me why in this lifetime for specific trials. Amen. See, if we are wise, we will direct our why questions to our God. The fact is, we don't always get the answer desired but the Lord always answers our prayers, and he gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. You can see 2 Peter 1.3 for that. Sometimes, though, the Lord actually very clearly tells us why. We spent the last 
a couple of weeks in the introduction of the Apostle Peter's first letter. We've been struck with the fact that the letter was written by the very man who denied the Lord three times, and yet by God's grace, he is now helping the first Christians know what it means to follow Jesus. We've learned that Peter's audience in this letter was a mix of believers, both Jews and Greeks. We've seen that, that we are to stand firm in grace and in living hope that, that we are given by God. And in the last few verses of the introduction that we're going to cover today, we're going we're to see another piece of the why. The why for which Peter will, therefore, when we get to verse 13 next week, call Christians to live holy lives amidst whatever chaos surrounds them. You could say that Peter is laying the groundwork for what it means to live undaunted. Last week, as a reminder, we discussed our inheritance of God, and we saw these things. Our inheritance sparks proper praise to God that we should bless him. It comes through God's mercy. We only deserve God's wrath, and yet his mercy allows us to, be, to know him and get his inheritance. It includes a new birth that we are made new, we're made alive is a living hope. It's not wishful thinking, but it is certain. It is pure and permanent. The terms he used is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is guarded by God. There's nothing that can take it away, not even ourselves. It is based on faith, trust, not works. It is appreciated as we endure trials. The testing of our faith proves its depths. And also, it leads us to a journey bringing praise, honor, and glory, not only to God, but also to us. This inheritance is what we gain from God as part of our salvation. And as Peter finishes the introduction of his letter, leading to the therefore that we'll see in verse 13 later, he enlightens us with a few more truths regarding this salvation, the intricacies of our salvation. These are more reasons that we can stand firm in our salvation. We begin today in verse 8 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. Now before we get a little further, I just want to clar uh, clarify real quick. As you see that second phrase, the first one, though you have not seen him, that's the visible scene. You love him. Though you're not seeing him now, that would be better to say not experiencing him physically now in the present. So the question is, how is it that we can love someone that we haven't seen? How do we not experience being with someone and yet still trust them? Pastor Chad Bailey recently walked through the men uh, at our conference um, through the theme of living in the world but not of the world. This played right along in our study of 1 Peter. What does it mean to be present here in the world yet to live as a citizen of heaven? That was the question that we were uh, approaching. And Chad highlighted for us in that the reality that, that ten, there's tension that we see in God's revealed word. There's lots of tension that we have to figure out how to live within. For example, if God foreknew and ordained my salvation as one of the elect, why do I also see in scripture a need to accept the gift of salvation or even offer it to someone else? Another, as, a, as Christians, we are called to love sinners yet we are not supposed to join in the sinful activities. Our Lord himself was called a friend of sinner because he ate and drank with the vilest of society, even tax collectors like Zacchaeus. And so there we find that this tension is exactly, um, there is tension in how exactly we are to live out loving people who are doing things that violate God's commands. The scriptures 
The fact is, the scriptures state that God ordained my salvation. You can see that in Ephesians 1. And I must respond in faith. You can see that in Romans 10. I am going to share, I'm to go and share the truth with all, even the broken and vilest of sinners, Matthew 28. And yet not walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You can see in Psalm 1. The fact is that there's this tension all throughout Scripture regarding our salvation. And to live undaunted, we must accept that tension. We must learn to walk in light of it. In fact, this is actually a key uh, to walk. The, the key to walk through this life is learning uh, how to live out the third line of our mission statement as a church. We are a redeemed community doing the Great Commission. The third line says, by the power of the Holy Spirit and then for the glory of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul tells us, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you have been saved, if you have made a profession of faith in Jesus, you, you know Jesus as your Savior, have been saved by grace through faith, it is by the Spirit's work that that happened. His convicting and revealing work is what allowed you to recognize, recognize your need for Jesus. It is by the Spirit's power that we are made alive. So then, we should walk in that same power each moment of every day. This, this is how we can love Jesus without seeing him. He has been revealed to us by the work of the Spirit. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. The fact is, this is, this is supernatural. And it's difficult, actually, to completely comprehend all the things that work. And yet, if we, if we stop for a moment, we actually live out practical life tensions every day and don't even recognize them. Pastor Wayne shared this comment from our friend Dr. Ron Rhodes. Dr. Rhodes says this, Scientists tell us that the earth is spinning on its axis at a speed of over 1,000 miles per hour at this very moment, yet we have no sensation of motion. At the same time, the earth is rotating around the sun at a speed of 66,000 miles per hour. Do you feel anything? The earth is moving at an incredible speed, but we do not perceive it. Einstein made this point by striking two consecutive blows with his fist, saying, between those two strokes, we traveled 30 miles. Incredible motion with no perception. Yet we accept by faith that it is nevertheless true, end quote. So we obviously live with, with tensions every day within creation. We also live within tensions, uh, with tensions in the intricacies of our salvation, tensions that we must wrestle with and wrestle in. Listen to this comment. Uh, Wayne Rain wrote this in his notes as, as he was studying and we're working through this. Uh, to highlight the intricacies of our salvation, that, that the salvation is more than its parts of past, present, and future. Listen to this. Wayne says this. Verse 2 speaks of the past nature of our salvation according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. It was done. Jesus said, it is finished, past. Then, Verses 3 and 5 present the present aspect of salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Present tense. We are saved in the present. 
Our salvation in Christ is present truth, being experienced now, despite this fallen world, the activity of demons, and our own sinful nature. And for the future, verse 9, and many others in 1 Peter, describes the future experience of salvation. When this age is complete, we will be fully and finally glorified, saved forever with God. But look at this, Wayne says. There is one little twist Peter adds here. He uses an old-fashioned verb in verse 9 and renders that verb in a present participle. The NIV reads, For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is stating that your salvation is future. That's clear in the term goal or outcome. But he also, he's also saying that, that this future aspect is present. You are receiving it presently. Peter is really thinking here, thinking hard. Just in this opening part of the letter, he's brought up a seeming paradox. You see, Peter isn't just suggesting that there are past, present, and future dimensions to your salvation. No, by his language, Peter is declaring that your salvation is past, present, and future all at once. End quote. And then amazing to think about. Your salvation is past, present, and future all at once. We can stand firm in our salvation as we accept the abounding tensions and intricacies of our salvation. About 11 years ago, I went on a mission trip to Uganda to help train some pastors. Pastor Jeremy Meyer and I, so, some of you know him, we had the privilege of going and sharing the scriptures uh, with these men and, and, and bits of our lives. We're discussing uh, servant leadership and, and giving examples of what it meant to serve others. And so, for, for instance, Jesus kneeling and washing the disciples' feet. And we shared a number of other things. While we're sharing those, those stories and talking to the men about the truths that we found in Scripture about serving, one of the men looked up and says, Ah, oh, when my wife asked me to fetch the water. We were kind of taken back a little bit, like, what do you, what do you mean by that? So he explained that in his home, the normal routines of life, his wife would, would go and fetch the water for the needs for the family for the day. That was one of her, her normal duties each day. There were times, though, when, when life was busy and things were different, and he had the ability, she would look at him and say, please go fetch the water for me. What became clearer as we talked to him and listened to him was the water was at least a half a mile away from the home, a little different than turning on a faucet in my house. And what he was recognizing was that as we were talking about the Jesus and servant leadership, he stopped and was like, I've got to be more joyful when my wife asked me to go serve and, and go fetch the water and I'm able to do so. He was recognizing the need for love and joy in that moment for his wife and helping her out. Now, I tell you that story. About this man, what do you feel? What do you think? Give me some answers. Somebody has to answer. What? Humbled. What else? Amazed. What else? Gratitude. Even though you don't know him, I don't know what he looks like, there is an affection for him. There is a learning with him. There's an endearment to him, right? While there are tensions that exist in the intricacies of our salvation, it is also plain that hearing the word of God that Jesus came to die for us and wash away our sins allows us also to love him, trust him, and experience joy. Though we can't see him physically, 
we can be drawn to him and his power and what he's done. Ultimately, in salvation, our affections are awakened. Our affections are awakened. Go back to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. As Pastor Chad helped the men last week walk through some of the tensions of faith, one of the other aspects was, was this one about our affections. And he began one of the sessions and he said, man, man, what is the manliest thing that you have ever done? Now, there were lots of answers, including driving uh, race cars and blowing things up in the military, which were, we had a lot of fun talking about those. As I pondered that question, though, the first thing that came to mind was that I married Jenny and we had kids. You see, for me personally, one of the manliest things that I could have done was to submit myself to a relationship with my bride and to commit to take care of her and stay with her till death parts us. And then we were gifted with these four little ones who are not so little anymore. That one in the picture is 12 now. We were gifted with these little ones to care for them and seek to help them understand who Jesus is and, and learn what it means to, to walk with them and be productive citizens of heaven and, and citizens of the communities in which they live now. Thinking back to the day that Jenny and I got married, the sanctuary that we, that we had our ceremony in uh, did not have a center aisle, kind of similar to what we have here. We didn't have a center aisle. We had, a, we had two sides. So when Jenny walked into the room, I couldn't see her standing in, in the middle, and so I walked to the side because I longed to see her walk in in her gown. So I walked to the side and looked up, and I was mesmerized. Is she coming to marry me? Like lots of thoughts, lots of emotion, lots... Like, do I get to actually, to, do we get to marry today? Like, is this happening for real? Like, lots of crazy stuff happening in my mind. Like, how am I going to take care of her? I don't even have a job. <laughs> and I didn't. I was in grad school. Ah, who cares, right? <laughs> God's got this. He's got us. We're going we're to be okay. I do. I do. Lots of affections and emotions and thoughts and processes going on in those moments. If, if our human relationships can well up all of those things, why would we think that the relationship with the Creator would be any different? Why wouldn't we have deep affections for a Creator who came near to us to offer us life? At some point in the conference with a man, uh, one of the guys actually did mention something about his family. And Chad then made the comment that we were now getting to the line of reasoning that he was looking for. His point was that we have deep affections, connections that are part of the intricacies of our salvation and our lives, affections that can spur us on to do mind-boggling things, like getting married without a job. If we understand them appropriately, appropriately, we can endure lots of stuff. Listen to 1 John 4, 16 through 19. It says, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. 
The recipients of Peter's letter possessed a deep love for the Lord. They understood the magnitude of their salvation, and because of this love, they were able to stand firm in the trials. And Peter is commending them for their love of the Lord. David Wade from our pulpit team was sharing with me that as he's been studying this passage, he's found Jonathan Edwards' thoughts on the text helpful. Let's listen to Edwards. He says, they said, the world was ready to wonder what strange principle it was that influenced them to expose themselves to so great sufferings. To forsake the things that were seen and to renounce all that was dear and pleasant, which was the object of sense. They seemed to the men of the world about them as though they were beside themselves and to act as though they hated themselves. They were, there was nothing in their view that could induce them thus to suffer and support them under and carry them through such trials. He goes on, but although there was nothing that was seen, nothing that the world saw or that the Christians themselves ever saw with their bodily eyes that thus influenced and supported them, yet they had a supernatural principle of love to something unseen. They loved Jesus Christ. For they saw him spiritually, whom the world saw not, and whom they themselves had never seen with bodily eyes. They had not seen Jesus physically, but they were enthralled with him. This is the result of understanding the intricacies of our salvation, that God came near, and Jesus came to take care of his bride, to give her life. And this is what allowed those brothers and sisters to walk triumphantly through the trials. Second part of verse 8, though they seeing him now, though not seeing him now, you believe in him. Though not seeing him now, though not experiencing him physically present now, you believe in him. Being the father of four children and serving within kids' uh, ministry for a very long time, I have noticed that a number of little ones uh, can experience what is described as separation anxiety. When mom or dad leave them with uh, someone else, then, then some of the little ones can get a bit distraught. Not experiencing mom and dad's presence at the moment, their trust can be shattered, so to speak. Now, while some of our little ones worked through this time, Jenny and I um, worked hard to be stable with them in all that we did. We boldly left them with encouraging words, exhibiting trust in the caregivers. The routines that we established in our home helped them to learn that we were trustworthy, that we would do everything in our power to pick them up when it was time. And fairly quickly, they learned to enjoy the time away from mom and dad because they trusted us. Our perfect father is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He has proven himself over and over and over again. That he will never leave you, never forsake you, never abandon you. Understanding the work that he did to rescue us allows us to learn to keep believing on him through, though we can't see him right now. Peter again commends these brothers and sisters because even though they did not see him nor were physically present with the Lord, they stood firm in their love and their trust, their faith in him. The reality of their salvation has awakened these affections, leading to inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Let's listen to Jonathan Edwards again. It says, though their outward sufferings were very grievous, yet their inward spiritual joys were greater than their sufferings. And these supported them and enabled them to suffer with cheerfulness. He goes on, their joy was full of glory. Although the joy was unspeakable and no words were sufficient to describe it, yet something might be said of it and no words were, 
were more fit to represent its excellency than these, that it was full of glory, or as it is in the original, glorified joy. In rejoicing with this joy, their minds were filled, as it were, with a glorious brightness, and their natures exalted and perfected. It was a most worthy, noble rejoicing that did not corrupt and debase the mind as many carnal joys do, but did greatly beautify and dignify it. It was a prelibation of the joy of heaven they, that raised their minds to a degree of heavenly blessedness. It filled their minds with the light of God's glory and made themselves to shine with some communication of that glory. Inexpressible and glorious joy. The fact that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on our behalf awakens our affections of love trust and joy and these allow us to walk through whatever circumstances may come our way as we continue with verses 10 through 12 we find another intricate piece of our salvation and that is that we profit from the prophets we profit from the prophets. First Peter 1, 10 through 12 says this, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Typically following why questions, we ask what, how, and when, don't we? The prophets too sought out to understand the when and the how of salvation. They wanted to understand what it would look like. And there's, there's a lot in these few verses, but we're going to take a look at a few key words and some comments um, from Wayne Gruden on, Grudem on them. Let's look at first a uh, couple. They searched and carefully in investigated. The prophet searched and carefully investigated. Grudem makes this observation. He says, neither, neither term means that they were merely pondered or wondered. The words both imply active effort in looking to find something. The first word searched implies diligent searching or seeking for something and is often used of seeking for God or searching scripture. The prophets also inquired. They inquired. Wayne Grudem says this, he says, the second word inquired only occurs in the New Testament, but 32 other occurrences are found in the LXS, Josephus, and Philo. Most often it refers to searching through something like a house, a tent, a city, or a country in order to find some person or thing, or else it refers to searching through scripture. And one more phrase, the spirit of Christ. Wayne Grudem once again says, the spirit of Christ within them refers to the Holy Spirit, but with a title which suggests that predicting the coming Messiah, the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek term Christ, was the primary focus of his activity in the Old Testament prophets. So much so that Peter calls him the spirit of Messiah or the spirit of Christ. To help understand, Pastor Wayne shared this story with me um, about his family moving to Frisco, Texas in 1991. And he was telling me that... Um, Back in those days, they were looking ahead, trying to understand and foresee what was coming to the little town of 5,000 people. People would sit, he said, in one of, two, one of the two restaurants in town and try to imagine the future. 
He spoke of excitement when they dug a big new water line along the two asphalt lanes of Preston Road. And he said this. We knew it would bless a later age. Because at, that, at the time, we frankly had no concept of how there could be that many people needing that much water. Of course, today, Frisco has 200,000 citizens, and there are two restaurants on every corner. But that 8-inch water line has brought millions of gallons of water to thirsty people, including people with Frisco Bible Church, which wasn't even a thought when that water line went in. That water has been used in ways they never foresaw. But every drop has passed through that original pipe. The prophets are the conduit of Christianity, and the church is the culmination of their preparation. Do you hear that? The prophets are the conduit of Christianity, and the church is the culmination of their preparation. You and I have profited from the prophets. The fact is that the Spirit of God moved, and he taught them. He showed them about salvation in the Messiah. He showed them that, that they weren't going to see it clearly firsthand. They were serving us at a later date, serving those in the future who would hear the gospel and be saved by the message of the good news that Jesus came down to give life to all who would trust in him. That fact should allow us to stand firm in our salvation, to walk boldly, that this was not a flippant thing. It's not just a religious exercise. The creator of the universe planned and forethought and made it happen that you and I get to stand here today and hear the word of God because these prophets listened to the Holy Spirit and did his work. And now others have told us the message of Jesus and we get to proclaim his name today. One more fascinating intricacy of our salvation is caught in the last part of that verse 12. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. If you pay attention, angels seem to get a great deal of attention these days. They're given lots of power. They're worshipped which is frankly sad. Misunderstandings of angels such as the thought that people become angels when they get to heaven really weakens faith. Why? Because the truth is the only thing that will set you free. Lies and misunderstandings will not. Peter's mentioned here that angels long to catch a glimpse of the way people are saved through the announcement of the gospel shows that they are unaware of the same opportunity that you and I have by faith to gain salvation. The Holy Spirit moved through the prophets to announce the coming Messiah, who was preached to you as the opportunity to gain an inheritance that is unmatchable. That truth is special. It's special to you, man and woman, who is created in the image of God. It's unique to us. So special that the angels and all the work for the Lord are unaware personally, but they long to see the glory of the Lord displayed in his work. They long to catch a glimpse of it. The salvation of our souls is an intricate work of the triune God to reach down and save mankind from himself. 
Jesus made a way for us, and Peter has highlighted that wrestling in the things that we may not completely understand, relishing in the beautiful affections we get to have because of his love for us, and living in gratitude that those who went before us were used by God to give us the greatest message ever told allows us and helps us stand firm. We can live undaunted in the world now because of the intricacies of our salvation playing out in past, present, and future. As I've, as I've been working through the text, I've been struck by the richness and the sweetness of the work of God. That the intricacies of salvation, the tensions, the awakened affections, the work of the Spirit through the prophets who served me, and the fact that these messages were even hidden from angels to, to some extent, that, that it culminates in a, the fact that God came near. I keep saying that God came near in Jesus. He took my place on the cross. He died and he rose again, offered me abundant life, not only for the future, but, but right now. Right now. And all these thoughts allow me to stand firm in my salvation with inexpressible joy and be prepared for whatever may come my way. That truth is sweet. It's sweet. As the old hymn declares, there's no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. Here's a portion of the group Selah's version. There's no sweeter name than Jesus. I have tasted, I have seen. Nothing better than his presence, a friend when I'm in need. There's no sweeter name than Jesus. He's the savior of my soul. By his blood I'm forgiven. He calls me now his own. There's no greater name than Jesus. At its mentioned, darkness hides. All creation stands in wonder and heaven glorifies. I will declare his goodness. I will declare his love. My life will testify forever all that he is and what he's done. All that he is and what he's done. During that trip to Uganda that I mentioned a few years ago, um, my friend Jeremy was discussing with the pastors the sweetness of the word of God and the, the good news of Jesus. And in an attempt to physically remind them and give them a picture of sweetness, we we had taken boxes and boxes of oatmeal cream pies to share with our friends. So we were enjoying our treats together. I don't know about you, I love these things. As we were gobbling ours up, like I eat them in like one bite, just so you know, okay? Just, I just do. But as we were eating them, we noticed, we looked over, and this one pastor took a very, very tiny bite. Like, very tiny bite. And he just savored it. He wrapped the plastic back over the, the rest of the pie and he put it in his coat pocket. And we looked at him kind of puzzled because we're like, we're all like starting our second ones now, right? And we said, hey, do, do you like that or do you not like? Oh, no, it's very good. It's very good. I want to take home to share with my wife. Oh. I want to take it home to share with my wife. You who have trusted in Jesus for salvation have an amazing inheritance, an abundant life marked with love and trust, faith, joy. The question is, are you relishing in that gift? Are you standing firm in the midst of life's trials, and are you sharing that blessing with others? If you do not know this life, if you've never 
known this Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Then for you, you are a sinner. Let me just tell you, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God, the one spoken of by prophets long ago, and he came to earth to die on your behalf, and he went to the cross willingly. And he bled and he died for you. And three days later, he rose again to defeat death because he's powerful, because he's life. And he offers to you today life, abundant life, one filled with love and joy and, and trust, sweetness. Trust in the sweet name of Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are great and greatly to be praised. You're far more wonderful than we can even describe, and yet we try. Father, you, you have changed us. You've allowed us to taste the sweetness of what it means to know you, our creator, the one and only true God. And God, we thank you. We thank you that even though we can't understand all of your workings and, and how it plays in time and space, and, and even though that can be difficult, we can trust you because you have proven over and over again that you are trustworthy. And we can be secure in your love. We don't have to fear. But the depths of our salvation allows us, if we pay attention, if we rest in you, the one who provides all that we need, we can walk through any trial that, that comes our way. And I ask that you would help us do just that, that we would walk through whatever comes with joy and love and trust in the one who holds our future. God, for anybody who doesn't know you, I ask that you would pierce their heart right now and call them to your side. In Jesus' name.